Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio episode 1014. For today's episode, Jay Jaffe and Dan Zimborski sat down for an extended conversation to welcome back spring training baseball. They offer their thoughts on the pitch clock and the bigger bases, and how the Zips projection system can struggle with new rules. Jay and Dan then talk about Manny Machado's huge extension with San Diego, which they both got to write about, and what a large factor opt-outs play in today's mega-contracts. Finally, the pair look ahead to next offseason, which should feature a very big contract for Shohei Otani. I actually think there are reasons to be pessimistic on how big contracts will be next year, except, of course, for Otani. People would just say, OK, I've I've written 17 commas on this check. You just put the numbers around it that you want. That'll be a ton. How many years do you want this billion dollars to be for? Yeah. How many years do you think you want to play baseball for? OK, how much money do you think you could spend over those years if you really tried like Richard Pryor? <laughs> OK, that's your deal. That's going to be Otani's deal. But before we get to Jay and Dan, I must issue my weekly reminder for you to mosey on over and visit the Fangraphs.com shop. Not only can you pick up your official Fangraphs shirt or coffee mug, but you can also get an ad-free membership, good for yourself or as a gift for a friend. It is, of course, the best way to browse Fangraphs and also to support Fangraphs, helping us to do everything it is we do. From the daily articles, to the projections, to the leaderboards, to the roster resource pages, to the podcast, to everything else Fangraphs, we couldn't do without the support of our members. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Welcome back. And since you're listening to Fangraphs Audio, that is the most that we have the rights for by fair use. Uh, thank <laughs> you for joining me on Fangraphs Audio. I'm, I'm Dan Zaborski, and I'm joined by my colleague, Jay Jaffe. And we're here to talk about spring training and injuries and rules because baseball is back. So, Jay, how's it going today? It's going good as far as baseball is concerned. Uh, the, my, my, my home, my apartment is, is, is another matter as I'm trying to put it on the market, but uh, uh, we won't bore the readers with all the details of that. You but what the details me. could be interesting. For instance, do you have a haunted room that you walled out because of the ghosts inside and that's why you're having trouble with it no but i do have a washer dryer that that was installed and 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 uh left it so i can't access a sliding door closet and now i'm going to be out several hundred dollars for uh uh some electrical rewiring but hey that's only one of about seven things i got going here so yeah it's been a week and it's only wednesday here I, I do have a, a, a downstairs bathroom, which I suspect is haunted. Uh, I think mainly because it has wallpaper of fish, which creeps me out if I'm in there in the middle of the night. So it might not be a haunting. It just might be me. But anyway, what isn't haunted is spring training, except by the specter of Rob Manfred hinting about blue ribbon panels and oh, salary caps without without saying the word salary cap. It's a economic panel thing. Uh, however, they worded it in in, in typical uh, corporate speak. So, Jay, wh- what have you enjoyed the most about spring training so far? Well, to be honest, I I had only really turned on the games myself, except for highlights, just yesterday for the first time. We got our uh, MLB TV subscription up and running uh, the day before that, and checked in on it. And you know, I've seen the clips of of the. Uh, Pitchers working faster, and uh, obviously, I think that's the most noticeable thing about spring training is the you know the introduction of the pitch clock and the broadcasts where 
Uh, the pitch clock is featured prominently either because it's visible to the pitcher or because they put it in like the score bug. Haven't really noticed much else other than, you know, we're getting, a, I think, a wider selection of uh, uh, guys who will soon be reassigned to minor league camps. And so we're, you know, we're looking at, uh, you know, prospects that won't really figure, you know, figure too much in this season here, but uh, haven't really gotten much of a sense of these big bases. And I think, you know, to the average viewer at home, for example, it's going to be harder to spot. And I don't keep my eyes close enough on the game, you know, during the day when I have baseball on to get too much sense of what's happening with the with the implementation of the uh, anti-shift rule. What about you? I think it, it's hard to see the bases uh, simply because I think we're more likely to see the effect of the bases than the bases themselves because cameras don't really focus on the base right. themselves that often. So it's it's hard to get a real feel of the extra room. I mean... Despite the jokes, it's not really the size of a giant lunch tray or a no. tablecloth or something. People keep calling the new bases the pizza box bases. Well, have you ever never ordered a medium pizza before and gotten a smaller box? Because I certainly, you know, I certainly do. Now, you see, because of the delivery cost, I have I get the maximum amount of pizza possible uh, so uh, that it's, it's most efficient that way. Fair. I guess I've never, I'm not afraid of having leftover pizza, but uh, a lot of times it's, you know, there's arguing in the household over who wants what. And, you know, when you've got two adults and a kid, you usually end up getting two pizzas anyway. So it's like one large, one medium. See, one of one of the, uh, the, 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 the benefits of being a middle-aged loner who's not very friendly, uh, <laughs> all, all the pizza is, is, is frequently mine unless uh, one other person wants it, which uh. she doesn't usually. When, when I remember the best pizza size-wise was when we were kids uh, in high school. Pizza Hut had the Bigfoot pizza. Do you remember the Bigfoot pizza? Only vaguely, yeah. For like $10, they gave you this massive sheet of 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 pizza the size of a swimming pool but i i digress uh the the bases aren't that large i think any effects we'll see will come in terms of maybe batting average stolen bases because people have focused on the stolen bases as the as the main effect of this but i think people are largely missing that larger bases decrease the the, the space between the bases and that does have you know it, it does incentivize putting the ball in play more if it's if you're if it's shorter from home to first a little shorter from first to second all of a sudden i i, I don't think it's a bad idea to incentivize a, a slightly different style of play and make it actually profitable because that's the problem i always talk about baseball's offenses right now is kind of the anna karenina thing that all great offenses are pretty much the same it's just that every <laughs> lousy offense is sad in its own way yeah the, the great sports writer leo tolstoy i have invoked him on more than one occasion in terms of happy teams are all like or winning teams are all like but losing teams uh not so much you know, you said something about the bases there. I mean, on a percentage basis, the we're talking about like a half percent reduction in distance between bases. And I know that like small changes, you know, in distance can lead to, you know, larger changes in outcomes. Like when we're talking about home runs, like you move the fences in three feet, you know, and home run, home run production, you know, goes up. A lot more, you know, on a percentage basis, it's a lot more than that. It's like you might increase it 10% or 20% or something like that, just because of that very sensitive edge case, you know, where it's like, yeah, there's a lot, you know, big difference between 399 and, and 402, you know, when the, when the warning track's right there or something. But how much difference do you really think this is going to make with a half percent difference in stolen bases, you know, in, in distance between bases? And when you're doing zips, do you account for a slightly higher stolen base environment in this? How does how does that work for you? 
Well, people ask me, how does Zips use the new rules? How will it do with the new rules? And I say, oh, terribly. Uh, <laughs> and and they're usually not satisfied with that answer. And my my rule here, I don't like making up things. That it, right. It's kind of the opposite of Zips. And I, I don't like any part of the projection system being some mix of reality and Dan Zimborski's arbitrary opinion of right. things. I kind of had to do that after 2020 because there was no real guidance about how to wait and treat 2020. And I couldn't yeah. say, okay, uh, David, uh, we're not going to do Zips projections this year because I'm not really sure. That wouldn't be a great career move for me to just say, we'll start these up again in 2026 when, when 2020 is really far in the rearview window. So I kind of had to make up and kind of guesstimate based on how I normally do it, what it would look like. Uh, but there was no such guidance here, especially because we still don't didn't really know what how exactly the shifts will work out because it bans shifts. It doesn't ban shifting. So there are still ways you can position players that right. may not be the traditional, uh, you know, 1982, how everybody stands in the field. So I just tell people, you know, Zips doesn't take this into consideration because then you know what Zips is saying and what Zips isn't saying, as opposed to this player has a 280 batting average projection, which includes his stats and some mysterious Dan Zaborski adjustment factor for bases and shifts. Right. Even if it made it more accurate, which it possibly could, because I, I am fairly knowledgeable about baseball and guessing things, I think it makes it ultimately less useful as a tool. And really, my goal is to be as useful as possible to people, even if sometimes you do sacrifice a bit of accuracy by some of my stances. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a, that's that's wise, and you know because the danger of overestimating too much in one direction is going to reduce the value of of what you're doing. If you if you're saying like, oh, this is going to increase stolen base, you know, attempt rates like by eighteen percent and success rates by you know. 15% or something like that, you are you can really throw something way out of whack and, and it becomes much less useful. People suggested to me, you know, look at AAA. And I'm like, you can't necessarily do that because minor league games are not managed the same way major league right. games are. In minor league games, they are much more willing to have everyone steal bases whenever they think it's appropriate than they are in the majors. In the majors, you know, there are big contracts and, you know, you're, you're not a lot of teams just don't want to be aggressive on the base paths with their $250 million outfielder. So right. you can't necessarily take that into uh, uh, consideration. I, I do think it will make a difference because if you look at a lot of things in baseball, the percentages between good and bad are, are so small. Like imagine telling someone that, okay, if 29% of the balls hit in play against this picture over the course of a year is the number that that picture had average luck but if it was 27 percent they were super lucky it, it it doesn't really necessarily i think there's a little bit of dissonance it's like that's only two percent but two percent's a big difference and i think it's also pays to baseball has more to lose by a a, a messed up change that's too severe than one that's not enough because you could always go back later and make the bases bigger but what if you make the bases like gigantic and the league hits 340 for a year? I think that causes a lot more damage than, say, those slightly larger bases not making much of a difference. Because you can always go back and say, OK, well, we'll just make them slightly larger. I, right. I think baseball, which is a sport that's, you know, there's a lot of value to the tradition. 
baseball is more of an unchanged game going to like 1930 than any other sport. I mean, it's different, but you can watch a game in 1930 and understand exactly what's going on. Uh, and you can't really do that in other sports to the same degree. Uh, so I, I, I think baseball's reasonable to be incremental here. I'm a little more uh, positive than you that it'll make a difference, but we'll see. Yeah. What do you think of the pitch clock so far in terms of theory versus uh, from what you've seen uh, on the field? Any 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 big thoughts there? As a baseball fan for a long time, I do have that kind of trend towards traditionalism and old fogeyism about everything. But I've come around on it a lot. I, I don't think it's a bad idea to have some kind of time pressure on players. I mean, every sport has it. I, I think it generally improves it. My one complaint is... I hate seeing the big clock. I don't want to see the, this, yeah. this massive clock. Have it like, you know, offset off camera where I don't see it. Let the picture see it. I don't want that movement in my peripheral vision while I'm watching a picture batter confrontation. Uh, I don't really need to know it. And given in AAA, there were very few violations after the first month or two. I don't think it's necessary to see it for every pitch. So please shift that off the screen. I just don't want to see it. Yeah, I think I think we'll probably get to that point fairly quickly if we if we haven't already. Like I have I have the Yes Network broadcast of the Yankees game on right now here, and uh, I'm not seeing a pitch clock in my field of vision. You know, there and because I'm not I don't have the volume up. I'm not hearing them talk about it. So maybe maybe at least some of some of the some of the novelty has, has already worn off just a little bit here. I have been struck though by how hurried some of these some of these matchups have seemed less so in this broadcast than than in you know the fragments of ones that I've caught in the last couple of days you know it does it, it does feel maybe just a little frantic and I know that people are just like you know on on Twitter at least you know blowing their tops at the possibility that somebody could be you know can take a third can get called for a third strike for taking too long or whatever and then you know and and even having a game end on that on that possibility that you know i see i see people's you know discomfort with this at the same time i th- i think mark Carrig of the athletics said it very well when he said you know the fake baseball season is a great time for these guys to get a feel for the rules um it's much better to make a mistake when there's fake baseball than when there's real baseball yeah i expect players to get acclimated to it over time because i think people are overestimating how drastic it is because if the pitch clock remains you're going to have players who are brought up with the pitch clock and it's not going to be a big deal and they're going they're naturally not going to work like steve traxel is or, or pedro baez yeah. Or, or Joaquin Benoit. They're going to just it's just going to be part of the game. Nobody really will worry about it anymore. And I mean, I, I think over time, the chances of, of when you have fewer uh, violations, I think the chances of a, a, a violation changing the outcome of a game are probably pretty small. I think it could happen in the first month. Uh, but, you know, you have to have a penalty or it's not really a rule. It's just like, oh, come yep. on, guys. Is that like on two strikes? The umpire just say, come on, guys, hurry up, please. I mean, delay of game penalties can cost teams in football. It can put the game winning field goal out of reach with the five yards and the loss of down or repeat of down. Excuse me. Right. I hope it's not a problem long term, but I think that if we make changes, people have to expect that there are going to be repercussions of changes and especially short term effects as 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 people get acclimated to it and then and, and coaches get used to it and managers and players and everyone gets used to it, even broadcast uh, because it, it changes kind of the 
the the broadcast pattern in a way now the the color guy can't have his rambling thing we can't hear the whole treaties of of uh odd leads versus even leads from hayrod we have a everything's a little quicker now you got to be snappier yeah i i do feel like there is a lot of slack here that i'm i'm when i think about it eager to see reduced if if not necessarily fully eliminated i mean as somebody who has to consume baseball in mass quantities because it's my job yeah, I don't mind the idea of the West Coast game ending 20 minutes earlier than before because that means I'm not staying up past 1 o'clock every night. You know, it means that it gives me another 20 minutes to, to watch a sitcom or something like that before I go to bed uh, and get a little, put a little bit more sleep under my pillow or something like that. And, you know, I, I feel like so much of, so much of the, the stretch out, stretched out between pitch time is where we've developed these bad habits of like paying less attention to games, you know, looking at our phones, scrolling through Twitter, other things like that. And baseball, you know, baseball is good for multitasking anyway, because you don't have to always be sitting there on the edge of your seat. You could have a ball game on while you're working around the house or something like that. But, you know, even when you're there and just watching a game, your tendency, the, the tendency for attention spans to wander because Pedro Baez is, is circumnavigating the globe uh, between pitches, or Kenley Jansen is is tying his shoes a third time in this at bat. Um, <laughs> you know, those are costing those are costing you know my attention span, and I'm sure they're they're turning off some viewers. So, getting those guys at the extremes to speed it up, you know, I think is I think is good. And I was really struck when I I, when I wrote about Kenley Jansen last Friday. I was really struck the how just how much it is. This is a problem for relievers and not starters. There were only five starters last year, five pitchers who made more than six starts, at least six starts last year, and had um, a timer equivalent average above 15, above 15 seconds. Shohei Otani and Corbin Burns were, t- were the two notable ones, and Michael Kopech, and the rest were like, you know, fringe guys like J.P. Sears who made a few starts and things like that. And everybody else, it's relievers, you know, that are the violators here. So I thought that was interesting, and I, th- I think... You know, given obviously the trend towards more relievers, we could see, you know, and and starters working less. We can see just what an impact this is going to have. That was it today I learned. I did not realize that with the reliever versus pitcher thing. So that is that's that's super interesting to me. And I like when I learn things because then there's one less thing that I don't know and my enemies <laughs> can't take advantage of. Oh, there you go. Yeah, the, the, that was that was to me. Yeah, something that I, I you know, I, I knew it would be weighted weighted towards relievers i didn't expect it to be quite that stark the other point i would make right now is that you know there's this this rush to say oh yeah look they're they're knocking 22 minutes or 32 minutes off the average game time in spring training without considering the fact that spring training you generally don't have mid-inning pitching changes and we're still going to get those during the regular season and so you know we're still going to have those those time lags so we're not really comparing apples to apples right now I think Travis Sawchick actually did spring training times versus spring training times. I'd oh, have to find okay. it. Uh, I, I think for, he did find it him. like 18 minutes. Uh, okay. But I might be making that up completely since it's it's just off the top of my head. But anyone who's on can either mention in the comments what it actually is. And if Dan is wrong or if Dan is a liar, you can let us know. I do like spring training. And, and you were talking about how baseball – the the pace of game allows things to become very casual and i don't think that's great for a you know a viewer or for an ongoing 
sport because then it becomes almost like background noise. And I don't think necessarily you want your sport or your music or your television show to necessarily be designed to be background noise uh, for things. Yeah, uh, I, I think you want people kind of glued to it. And even great things like baseball. I mean, you you can ha- run into that trap like Mozart was a great composer, but there is a lot a really low tier Mozart, just little <laughs> little German dances and the like that he wrote to be played while people were eating, essentially. And it's really just kind of classical era garbage, so to speak. And all all the composers of the era uh, did that. And I, I, I don't think that's necessarily very compelling. But what is compelling is that the San Diego Padres committed to a very, very large deal with Manny Machado, who I think, you you might disagree with me, I think he's become the Manny now when you say Manny. You don't mean Manny Ramirez, you mean Well, Manny certainly Machado. Within, within the context of the, of the current game, yes, he is the Manny, and we, and we call him the Manny. I wanted to add just one thing, though, to, to dial back to uh, what you were just saying about Mozart's third-tier garbage. As, as we say around here in reference to, to one of Vince Scully's best stories, they can't all be ice skating with Jackie Robinson. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Oh, I miss Vin. Now I remember that he passed away. Yes. Well, I, I, I'm I, sad I, again. Yes, of course. But, you know, not every not everything we work on is, 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 is a big hit. You and I were both writing almost every day. Some of them are just kind of filling that daily need and, and, and covering the injury that needs to be covered. And, you know, some of them are, you know, more you know, deeper studies and think pieces and whatever. So, yeah, I get it. I get it with Mozart. Not that I'm comparing myself to Mozart or you to Mozart, but we all know that uh, there's a spectrum of what's great versus what's good, what's passable. And it varies for each of us, but uh, not everything is, is, is going to be a gem. But yeah, getting back to Manny, we both had a lot of thoughts about him. I wrote about uh, his deep-seated vow to opt out after this season uh, last week and bugged you for about 17 different versions of the projections and came to the conclusion that, uh, yeah, this wasn't going to be a great idea for him if, if a team was going to approach this rationally. And then 72 Whoops, hours later... Yeah, me. Yeah, I, I said the same thing. I did not think that it would happen so quickly and easily and lucratively. Uh, yeah. So I, we we were both wrong. Yeah, he gave the Padres a deadline. They you know they they didn't meet that deadline, and we thought, okay, well, he's going to revisit this in November. And yeah, he's he's taking a lot of risk here because he may not have a great season. He's going to be thirty one next season. You know, he's coming whereas he's coming off an MVP caliber season now, and at least has that leverage. And as you put it so well in, in your piece, uh, following up what I did when Manny actually agreed to an extension that was much bigger than either of us anticipated, we underestimated how motivated the Padres were to keep Manny happy and in the fold. I didn't just underestimate how motivated they were to keep Manny. I think I've underestimated, even even being aggressive, just how willing they are to spend, because that's one of the X factors in predicting these contracts is you never really know how an owner feels about a certain situation because it's it's never a GM's call to give a three hundred yeah. million dollar contract yes. or not. Agreed. There is there is owner involvement. Uh, the owner, uh, uh, Seidler, did not open up the papers and and hear about the, the three hundred <laughs> million dollar contract that way. Oh, we're spending that much. Well, tralale. As his monocle pops out. <laughs> yeah, I I tend to think of owners as kind of the monopoly guy. Yes. As rich uncle pennybags. And uh-huh. I don't think I'm that far wrong. You can see kind of owners triggering or rigging a, a 
perverse beauty contest where they win third prize and get $15 or $25 or <laughs> however much that community chess card is. Like Monocle's top hats, small little cars that, that go around because right. they're the piece. Maybe they ride a cannon. I don't know. <laughs> or an iron. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can see Rob Castellini riding around on, 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 a, on a cannon. Yeah. But it does reflect that the Padres may not, may have, you know, internally said, you know, we're our our profit here is going to be the increase in value of the team, not necessarily our year to year profits, because I think you do reach a you, there's obviously you're going to reach a point where you're not profitable. And I'm not sure the Padres are actually going to be profitable. In most cases, we say, oh, that that team is profitable. That's probably a lie. But in this case, with the Bally's bankruptcy, the Bally sports bankruptcy and the Padres being one of those 14 teams affected by that specific one. I, I think they are going to lose a significant amount of money this year uh, and, and be compensated for it, of course, with growth in the value of the team, the franchise on the open market. Yeah, they're they're buying credibility here. They're buying credibility among their own fans there. I, I, you know, I think that I mean, they've got a wonderful ballpark already. And, you know, last year getting to the NLCS for the first time in, in you know, approximately, you know, one eon, I think was a big deal. You know, they've already primed the pump by trading for Juan Soto last year. Then they went out and got Xander Bogarts. They re-upped you Darvish, you know, and, and now and now the, the Machado deal. I mean, you know, and before that, the, the Tatis deal. I mean, they're just, you know, they've got, what, three, three, no. Um, they have a lot of big contracts. <laughs> yeah, they've got, yeah, they've, they've, they've got three contracts, $280 million or larger. Uh, the Manny one, though, again, getting back to what to to the contrast in, in you know the numbers you came up with. I mean, I think at best, you know, when we we went with um, you know not not just a a median project what what Manny's next ten years looked like if he'd had like a median a season a twenty twenty three season close to his median projection. Uh, we also went you know what what does this projection look like? If we base it off of an 80th percentile season and then a 20th percentile season, and even the 80th percentile season only produced about $171 million worth of value over the next decade, 2024 to 2033, and he signed for twice that amount. Yeah, it was a, it's a big, it's a big difference. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge difference. And, and then you pointed, you pointed out in your piece that, yeah, if you, if you were to forecast him, but if as four years younger, you do get, you know, you get a contract where he's undervalued. But, uh, you know, there's the difference between, you know, forecasting somebody who's 26 versus forecasting somebody who's 30. And, you know, in your system, that makes that makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. When I when I uh, when I when I did my piece on Machado, because we were fortunate, we each got a we, we each got to extract a piece out of the Machado. signing. Yeah. I like these slow motion signings. It gives us a lot of opportunity to do some fun content. But yeah. I as a comparison, I mean, Zips doesn't do it quite this way. Machado had 46, whatever, 46.6 war in his 20s. And I compared how his projections against Every 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 position player in history who had between 41 and 51 war through age 29, you know, excluding guys like Mookie Betts who haven't had a decline phase yet. And Zips actually that grim projection is actually slightly above the average for how those players fail. The average was actually uh, 17 point something and it projected Machado in his 30s at 20.6. I think people just kind of overestimate 
how poorly, I mean, some stars can age. I mean, stars, they start from a higher place, but a lot of, you know, stars are not stars in their 30s. Miguel yeah. Cabrera was not. Pujols was not. You can go on and on. Ken Griffey Jr. was not a star in his 30s. And there were tons of stars on this list that just weren't that good in their 30s overall. I mean, Duke Snyder had 12 war after 30. Ted Simmons had 10. Joe Medwick had nine. Uh, David Wright had eight. And of course, that's an injury. But players get injured more in their 30s. Yeah, I was I was struck when I was looking at that ta- that table of 20s war versus 30s war for selected stars. At the bottom of that table, some of those names are very familiar because I have a I have a similar table in my in the Cooperstown casebook, which I wrote published in 2017. It was sort of on the subject of Andrew Jones. Actually, I think it was yes, it was within the Andrew Jones essay. Now that I look at, look at it here, but comparing you know the for Andrew Jones, for example, uh, at least based on the measure at the time, 57.9 war through age 29, then 4.9 in his 30s and he misses the cut in your table because he was too high yeah he was too good he was too better good than all of them. but but he ends up you know his 30s war would have, would have been the fifth lowest here um and some of those other names like cesar Cedeno pop up veda pinson jim fragosi i'm looking at, you know i've got your table juxtaposed on screen here with with uh, the table from my book and it's funny to see uh those names repeated there but yeah you know, I were talking the same you know, the same subject to talking about you know decline phases and and you know what Manny Machado might look like. Uh, Joey, when I wrote about Joey Votto this week as well, and how he's kind of, you know how he's fallen off, and it's still nothing compared to Albert Pujols, uh, you know, and 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 Miguel Cabrera. I mean, those have been two grueling half decade long replacement level slides that that. You know, there's just, those teams have been helpless to do anything about it. And you think, oh, no, they're overpaying Joey Votto this year. You know, it's like that's really nothing compared to what to what those other teams have done. And we see this a lot more often. And it's, you know, getting back to Machado. Yeah, it's, it, it's likely this could be the case. But, you know, sometimes it still works out anyway. The Tigers certainly had a, a nice run of success there for a while with Miguel Cabrera. They just got a little overzealous in, you know, in re- rewarding him for that. They never did quite get uh, to the championship that they thought they were going to get out of it. The Angels and Pools being another matter. But the Padres, you know, because they've never won a World Series and because they've only been to two and because they've been beaten, they had been so beaten up by the Dodgers in recent years. I think they really did need to start spending on the Dodgers level and buy back some credibility bring their own fans to the ballpark and kick those pesky Los Angeles fans coming down the road to squat at Petco, you know, in order to, in order to give themselves uh, more of a, more of a chance. And, and, you know, especially now that San Diego, uh, that the, uh, that the Padres are like the only game in town after the Chargers left, you know, and before them, the Clippers. So I think there's an interesting dynamic that goes beyond just the dollars and cents of spending on war and, you know, touches more on what you're saying about, franchise valuations and, and and all of that. But I do have to admit, I'm wondering where they get pictures because they're going to run out soon. On Andrew Jones, uh, now that you, you mentioned him, now I'm, now I'm internally enraged that he's not in the Hall of Fame because <laughs> he was 10 war too good to make this chart. And this <laughs> chart is like two-thirds Hall of Famers. Maybe that's an exaggeration because of the bottom of the list, but that's a pretty Hall of Fame list. Like, oh, he had more he had more war in his twenties than Schmidt and Morgan and Boggs and Bagwell and Brett. Yes. And you're like, yeah, that's that's like the Sandy Koufax of center fielders. We have Sandy yeah. Koufax in the hall, and why not Andrew Jones? Yeah. So so now I'm now I'm internally furious, not at you, just 
just generally speaking, my because usually I'm over the Hall of Fame vote by now. December is usually my most enraged month simply <laughs> because ballots come in, you know, like, OK, I voted for one player. Jim Deshays like, oh, God, uh, don't yeah. do that. Please don't do that. It makes us all look stupid. And we need we need three good ballots to make up for your ballot now. Ugh. Right. Yeah. Well, hey, I mean, on the bright side, Andrew Jones got 58 percent this year on the balloting. And that's uh, obviously very significant because once you pass 50 percent, you know, everybody, everybody who's gotten at least 50 is is in with the notable exception of the very polarizing and uh, uh, in some ways uh, almost unelectable Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens and and Kurt Schilling. You know, everybody else has finally uh, has has finally gotten over that hump, including the late Gil Hodges. And Jack Morris and and whatever and talk about things. We're gonna get get us mad again here, but um. yeah, now, now you mentioned Jack Morris. Now I'm very angry at everything, and now I just wanna I just wanna punch things. Okay, well, it's not like he was a nice guy either. Uh, no, he was a terrible guy. Well, well, we're still on the Padres. Uh, one one thing that makes it makes me wonder is if teams are actually evaluating their opt outs accurately because this came up mostly in the Eric like in the Eric Hosmer contract is where I kind of dealt with it the most because right. he was kind of a mediocre player to get an opt out so obviously it was more talked about because from the point of view of the Padres it was always going to be a 5 year deal if they wanted an 8 year deal and it's always going to be an 8 year deal in situations where they'd prefer a 5 year deal and i estimated that for that 8 year 144 million dollar contract with opt outs that it had the same valuation as an eight-year, $166 million contract without any opt-outs, just because of, of the risk that the right. Padres get. They always get the worst of the two contracts. And that was, you know, that was for a not great player over a much smaller contract. And that still was, you know, $22 million for the opt-out. And that's more than the value of a draft pick and teams shy against giving up draft picks for qualified offers we've seen how that sometimes really crushes the market for some of the players that that receive a qualifying offer uh so i i I think back on on machado's and i didn't really think too much of the opt-out at a time but essentially it was only going to be a 10-year 300 million dollar contract if it was terrible for them and if it was going to be good f- for them to have that contract, then it was always only going to be, you know, a four-year, $100 million contract. So essentially, the Padres risked 10 years without ever possibly getting the upside result right. of having him for 10 years at $300 million because it would have worked out very well. Like, the Joey Votto contract worked out well for the Reds, but it might not have if he had an opt-out. So then none of these contracts would have worked out. So I'm wondering if early on teams have kind of considered the opt out as almost a throwaway, like a little cherry on top you can offer, as opposed to something that has real financial consequences. Uh, And I think we've started seeing some contracts that don't have opt outs. Uh, The twins this time around aren't messing around with Carlos Correa since they're taking the risk of his health. There's no opt out as far as I know, uh, unless I miss something uh, for his new deal. So if he's healthy, they get him for six years, two hundred million dollars. So that's that's just kind of my last take on the San Diego Padres and the opt out, even if it's not really Padres specific. 
Yeah, didn't the um I'm pulling up the COTS contracts thing on, on Korea because weren't there some some other bells and whistles? Like there's multiple club options there. Yeah, but of course that's beneficial for the team. And right? those options are guaranteed based on plate appearances in the previous year and awards and he's got the no trade. And I know it was so I think it's a little bit more complicated than just the the six two hundred. Yeah, but essentially they'll pick up the options if if he's in a position to get those options, it's going to be good for them. If he's getting five hundred seventy five plate appearances yes. in twenty twenty eight, it means he was healthy. In which right. case, it's tilted. It, the incentives are it, they're til- it's tilted back towards the team the way most contracts with with options are versus how radically. You know, say the like the Machado or whatever these deals were, you know, tilted towards the player because the team always the, the team always gets a sh- the shorter end of the stick there. And the first contract, even then, there was a short contract. You can see the difference. The contract was going to be one year, thirty five million dollars if it worked out for the Twins, and it was going to be three years, one hundred and five million if it worked out terribly for the Twins. Right. Simply because, and I and I, I don't necessarily think that teams have master the arbitrage of this and i've actually talked with a couple of agents completely not for attribution about it and some of them do think that teams have underestimated the opt-out value so it's it's one of those interesting things to look going forward uh that i need to figure out how to study i'm not really sure how to do that yet but that's one of the mysteries to solve this season yeah you know like so much i mean our we build we build models that help us understand you know, behavior and, 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 you know, we can project behavior. We can, we can, we can grapple with it, but then the models become more, more complex and, you know, sometimes less useful. I mean, I saw a comment when in my, to my Machado piece that like, you know, something defective, like, and it was, this was just a, you know, a fairly dismissive comment and, and I didn't take it to heart too, too much, but it's like, yeah, this way of valuing players is dead. You know, it's like, uh, not really. I mean, you still, we still have to get an idea, you know, we still have to start with a number, we can figure out, you know, what's going to change the number in the team's thinking, but you know, we do, we still, still do want to start with understanding this on a, you know, on a rational basis, and then extrapolating into the into the softer factors, the more the unknowns, the odd mechanisms, uh, the things like that, you know, because we know we've we know that that parts of the model work. It's just we have to figure. There's, you know, we have to acknowledge that not everything in this model works. But one other thought here with all this opt out stuff. How much money, now that we've seen what happened to Machado, how much money did Nolan Arenado leave on the table by not opting out? Because, boy, howdy, it, it certainly looks like he could have gotten another $100 million out of this somewhere. I mean, a lot of people were surprised by how much money was, was sloshing around in, in this winter. Uh, I think he did leave some money on the table because he signed what Zips thought was a very reasonable, fair contract for both sides. And there was a lot of money, and whether it was because, I mean, we have a... This winter was a combination of a lot of factors. One, you had kind of the the hangover from last year where it was just the market was all messed up because of the lockout. You have, you know, inflation going around. You had the short term effect of everybody getting a little extra cash in their pockets from selling more of the streaming rights that they all shared. And you had the luxury tax threshold bump up by a good margin, by a lot larger margin than it goes from here on out for the rest of the collective bargaining agreement. So I think I actually think there are reasons to be pessimistic on how big contracts will be next year, except, of course, for Otani. People would just say, OK, I've I've written 17 commas on this check. You just put the numbers around it that you want. That'll be a ton. How many years do you want this billion dollars to be for? Yeah. How many years do you think you want to play baseball for? 
Okay. How much money do you think you could spend over those years if you really tried like Richard Pryor? <laughs> okay. That's your deal. That's going to be Otani's deal. Gut check. Over $500 million for Otani. Oh, boy. I don't think it's going to be that high because I think you, you look at like the finite. I mean, I don't think it's going to be that high in a straight deal. I do think it could be Trout-like. But I think, you know, the risk of, the risk to his arm pitching-wise, you know, may reduce the impulse to pay him at that level for that long. But I think, you know, I think you could probably build in, you know, the more complicated mechanisms there that do get to a max out figure that is truly eye-popping. Somebody asked me, I, I get asked this, like, what's it going to take for you to vote for Otani to get into the Hall of Fame? Because, you know, this is a situation where Jaws really isn't going to work very well. I'm like... Man, that guy gets to 10 years and gets a spot on the ballot. I'm voting for him. Flat out. I don't care what the final war is. He's already done such superhuman things that it's pretty obvious you have to find a spot in the Hall of Fame for this guy. I think you could add the the, the hitter jaws and the picture jaws together because you can't. Are, you can't. They it's are gonna, independent. It's going to come up short. It's going to come up short of where we think, you know, like, I mean, maybe it gets to like a, a David Ortiz type level as opposed to a... Uh, Scott Rowland type level or Adrian Beltre type level or something like that. I don't know why I'm pulling, you know, I was thinking about third baseman here, but it's not going to work in quite the same way as most cases in that. I mean, it's just, you know, because he's just, I think the law, you know, he is defying a, 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 a law of gravity here in terms of being able to do these things that nobody else has ever been able to do, you know, at least since uh, baseball took the form that we, that we recognize it here. Since I happen to have a projection system, which is, is actually pretty useful when we have conversations like this. Ah, uh, yes, that's true. I pulled it up while while we while you were talking, and Zips gives him a projected final jaws of twenty seven as a hitter, thirty seven as a pitcher. So that's sixty four overall. And that is, you know, Oh, Hall that doesn't work but it doesn't quite work that way because the different the hitting war and the pitching war still I mean that, well, this is probably a conversation we we can't really <laughs> I'd have to look at you have to like you know for the best seven seasons you know you're you're adding up like he okay he had a he like what did he have last year here let's I'm gonna pull his baseball reference page up here see I'm comfortable not having them to be the same seven seasons for each yeah okay so all right well then <laughs> there you go that's gonna be that's gonna change our that's gonna change our perceptions over here but like okay last year you know, for baseball reference war which is what I'm using in Jaws six point two pitching war. 3.4 hidden war so that's 9.6 there and then four nine and then nine well you know geez it may be close to 37 here you got two nine win seasons banked already there and he's only in uh about to enter his sixth season in all so maybe uh maybe he does get there i don't know what's this what what's the total of war you have for him uh the total for war is for pitching scroll over Carl scroll over I have lots of columns in my spreadsheet uh 43 war is a picture and as a hitter scrolling over not the same column in the same location where is it a 31 war okay so 72 war total that's what we're talking that's that's yeah. a hall of famer that, okay that's a hall of famer that's, yeah, and, and, and I'm just gonna say flat out that's a hall of famer that's, yeah that's, so I I think he has that he he doesn't need I don't think we're going to need to kind of cheat to make him a Hall of right. Famer. Got it. Okay. So, which is a good thing. Well, anyway, fair Fangraphs listener, we have reached the point at which your patience with listening to my high-pitched nasally voice has probably <laughs> run out. So before we go real quick, Jay, what's the one thing you're looking forward to the most this season? 
Oh, boy. You know, I... Uh, Don't even think about it. Whatever pops into your head. A more open National League now that the Dodgers are not the uh, the heavyweight champion or the 800-pound gorilla that everybody has to get around. It's. I think it'll be fascinating to see what happens there. And mine, I want to see Gunnar Henderson in the in the majors full-time, uh, full tongue drop to the floor, dollar signs in my eyes, old-timey car going awooga like a 50s cartoon. That's, that's, that's what I want for. Well, anyway, for Jay Jaffe, I'm Dan Zaborski, and you've been listening to Fangraphs Audio. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next time. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the program, consider sharing it with a friend or two. The recommendations really help us out. After you have visited the Fangraphs.com shop, don't forget to also sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter. Free to your inbox, it is the best way to keep up on all the cool projects we have going on. And finally, don't forget the Fangraphs app. Free on the Apple Store and Google Play, it's perfect for checking out Fangraphs stats on your smartphone while you're at the ballpark or on the go. That should do it for us this week. Be excellent to each other, and we'll talk to you next time.